Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. One might be tempted to just focus entirely on Kant's 1785 work entitled The Grounding of the Metaphysic of Morals. Since this work is the only context with grounding in its title. Although this grounding text has critically important contributions, I will not be giving it an exclusive focus for three reasons. One, because Kant does not complete his conceptualization and clarification of morality in this one work. Two, because Kant does not complete his discussion of the grounding process or the theoretical basics in his 1785 work either. And three, because major relevant contributions from dis about distinguishing morality from religion and also his moral argument for God's existence are not in the grounding text of 1785, but respectively appear in later works uh, in the religion within the boundaries of mere reason and in the critique of practical reason. Granted that a complete account of Kant's moral philosophy, including clarifying morality itself with an integral account that brings into consideration of all his practical works, and including a full discussion of grounding and justification is an immense task worth doing. Moral life's work than a brief paper. For this conference, I will focus on three very limited tasks, each of which I claim to be prominent and at the heart of the complete project. But first, the caution regarding the, the task of defining morality. We must take care to do this well so that once articulated, we can answer well these kind of questions. Is morality so understood worth grounding at all? Is morality so, underst so understood worth defending? Kant thought he had a good start on such a worthy account that he spent most of his life after 1781 working on that project, trying so hard to keep morality from being confused with very different things like self-interest, civil law, and religion. The three key elements of his moral account I focus on today are his use of the concept of the end in itself as a way to both clarify the absolute inner worth of humans and thereby to articulate the formula of humanity version of the categorical imperative. Secondly, his attempt to separate morality from religion. And thirdly, his discussion of the complete good and, which, and what is called the moral argument for God's existence. Section two, the concept of the end in itself and its grounding role. In his 1977 book, The Concept of Morality, Alan Donegan describes Kant, correctly in my judgment, as a talented laborer in investigation and defense of the Judeo-Christian moral tradition and that Kant's special approach was to isolate the philosophic core of what moral theorists, some of them theologians, had to say about morality. For my first key element of Kant's contributions, I move right away to 
what we might call in the spirit of recent March Madness, the game changer. The game changer is Kant's coining and his interpretive use of the term end in itself. In its central and most basic role in his articulating the categorical imperative. Many of us are familiar with the form of humanity version of the categorical imperative. And I quote, act so that you handle humanity both in your person as well as in the person of every other, always at the same time as an end, never use humanity merely as a means, end of quote. In offering a ground for this form of humanity, Kant introduces the term end in itself by first contrasting it sharply with the distinct value of an end for us. Regarding the latter concept of ends for us, Kant writes, quote, the ends which rational beings each set before themselves as the outcomes of their actions in pursuit of their desires are altogether only relative ends for only their mere relation to a specially constituted capacity for desire of the subject gives these ends their value, which value thus can provide no universal principles for all rational beings, and moreover can provide neither valid nor necessary principles, that is, practical laws for every willing. Therefore, all these relative ends are only the ground for hypothetical imperatives." End of quote. Kant goes on to describe such objects of our desires, subjective ends, as having merely a value for us. What is needed to ground a supreme practical principle as an objective end, something of absolute value, something, quote, in whose place no other end can be substituted, end of quote, Kant writes, the ground of this principle is Rational nature exists as an end in itself, end of quote. Note that Kant does not write that humans choose to earn moral status by choosing to be part of some optional group or by virtuous activity or righteous efforts. A few pages later in the grounding text, he adds that it is by reason of our human capability for morality that each human already exists as an end in itself. Quote, now morality is the condition under which alone a rational being can be an end in itself because only through morality is it possible to be a law-giving member in a realm of ends. Therefore, morality is what alone has dignity as does humanity insofar as it is capable of morality, end of quote. In coining the term end in itself, Kant is dramatically reminding the reader I have a series of things here. One, that all values are not generated by subjective conditional ends, ends for us, explained in terms of initial desires. Two, that as we go about it as agents pursuing our ends for us, we recognize that we should, and sometimes we do, limit our means and scramble, and also that we should, and sometimes do, refrain from acting on ends for us, that involve treating people as mere valueless tokens in the scramble. Three, in so recognizing that we should so limit and refrain our goal-seeking, we are aware that another value trumps our standard ends-for-us values. Four, that this higher value is independent of the ends-for-us values 
and not reducible to them. And so we can, and so can provide the basis or ground of a practical principle valid for and applicable to all in ways that the ends for us values cannot. Five, this higher value lies in the human persons themselves who should not be so handled in ways that disregard this value. Because the players in humanity's drama are too valuable to be so handled, they have a value that is absolute with respect to other values. And six, this absolute value does not come into being as a result of our acting as ends for us. This absolute value is already in place before we scramble, hence, the appropriateness of the tense in the assertion, quote, rational nature exists as an end in itself, end of quote. Kant goes on further to clarify the absolute inner worth of humans in terms of dignity, distinguishing dignity from market price. In this discussion, Kant's warning, Kant's warning is not so much about a theoretical challenge from the seminar room, such as limiting all valuing to the above ends for us analysis, but one could describe this dignity market price distinction as a warning of a challenge from the street, claiming that all valuing must be about the market pricing of replaceable products. In the brief piece on groveling buried deep inside the, the uh, 1797 Metaphysical First Principles of Virtue, Kant brings together both end in itself and dignity discussions in a single summary statement, articulating clearly the absolute value of a person. Quote, but the human being understood as a person, that is as a subject of moral practical reason, is above all price. For such a being, homo noumenon, is not to be valued merely as a means to the ends of others, nor even as a means to his own ends, but is to be esteemed as an end in itself. That is, such a being possesses a dignity and absolute inner worth." End of quote. Part three. Kant's effort to separate morality from religion. The second element in Kant's account I choose to highlight is Kant's most explicit attempt to separate morality from religion, appearing at the very start of the first edition preface to the religion. Kant begins, quote, so far as morality is based on the conception of the human being as one who is free, but who also, just because of that, binds himself through his reason to unconditional laws, it is indeed, it is in need neither of the idea of another incentive other than the law itself. Hence, on its own behalf, morality in no way needs religion, but is rather self-sufficient by virtue of pure practical reason." End of quote. Making use of his earlier work as background, Kant goes on to quickly state his case regarding whether morality or, or religion is philosophically prior to the other, and which is the source of the other. He argues that, quote, 
morality inevitably leads to religion, end of quote, but one philosophically begins with morality. According to Kant, given an adequate understanding of the nature of morality, one needs no further end in view to recognize one's duty or have a reason to carry out that duty. And I quote, morality needs absolutely no material determining ground of the free power of choice, that is, no end, either in order to recognize what duty is or to impel its performance. On the contrary, when duty is the issue, morality can perfectly well abstract from ends altogether, and ought to so do. For example, to know whether I should or even can be truthful in my testimony before a court of justice, or faithful when someone else's goods entrusted to me are being reclaimed, there is no need to demand an end which I might perhaps propose to myself to realize by my declaration for what sort of end this would be, this, this, what this would be does not matter at all. Rather, one still finds it necessary to look, to look around for some end when his testimony, testimony is rightfully demanded of him. This is, in this respect, already contemptible." End of quote. Five years later, uh, very close to the end of the Metaphysical Principles of Virtue, uh, there appears a remark section entitled Fragments of a Moral Catechism, in which Kant describes a catechism that is a, that is a moral, not a religious catechism, that begins with a special emphasis at its very start on conceptual clarification and explicitly distinguishes the question of happiness and how to achieve it from the question of whether one is worthy of happiness. He goes on to uh, prescribe not mixing religion into the moral catechism. Quote, the moral catechism must precede the religious catechism and cannot, cannot be expounded merely as an insertion interwoven with religious instruction, but must be separated as a self-sufficient whole. End quote. On maintaining the purity of moral principles, Kant goes on to explain, in this moral catechism, the greatest attention must be paid to the consideration that a command of duty is not founded upon the advantages or disadvantages of observing it, either for the man it ought to obligate or even for other people, but rather is founded quite purely upon moral principle. Any mention of advantages or disadvantages is only incidental. The ignominy of vice, not the harmfulness of it for the agent himself, must above all be strikingly represented. For if the dignity of virtue and action is not exalted above everything else, the very concept of duty disappears and dissolves into mere pragmatic prescriptions. Then the, the nobility of man in his own consciousness disappears, and he is for sale to be bought at any price which tempting inclinations may offer him. Notice here that the reason for maintaining purely moral considerations is the maintenance of morality, the very maintenance of morality. 
In other words, Kant enjoins his readers to proceed with a moral catechism free of religious elements and prior to a religious catechism to avoid harm from confusion to morality itself, at least in the minds of some individuals. Part four, highest good as complete good. And how is it practically possible? I turn now to highlight my third element of Kant's account, the combined discussion of the highest good as the complete good and what is for brevity been referred to as the moral argument for the existence of God. The precursor of Kant's account of the highest good starts in the last two paragraphs of the first section of the grounding text, where Kant describes a natural dialectic between reason's commands of duty on the one hand and that powerful counterweight as he calls it, to duty's commands consisting of one's needs and inclinations, the total satisfaction of which is called happiness. In the second critique, Critique of Practical Reason, Kant frames the dialectic in terms of self-love and morality, the desire for personal happiness on the one hand, and one's duties known by reason on the other. With reason here playing a role for each of the two principles, moral principle on the one hand, and on the other hand, with prudential efficiency at the rational service of the principle of self-love. This is a, uh, a general definition of self-love, a neutral definition. Given morality's demand to do the right thing because it is right, and given the natural desire of every person for his own happiness, reason thinks in terms of the highest good as the complete good, as a way to unify and synthesize these two distinct requirements of our practical reason. The highest good as the complete good comes to be defined as happiness in proportion to moral virtue, or happiness in proportion to a person's worthiness to be happy. The question then is, how is this highest good practically possible? It's practically possible if we, quote, assume a higher, most holy, and omnipotent being who alone can unite the two elements of this good. What is most important here, however, is that this idea rises out of morality and is not its foundation, that it is an end which is to make one's own already presupposes ethical principles. It cannot be a matter of indifference to morality, Therefore, whether it does or does not fashion for itself the concept of an ultimate end of all things, although to be sure harmonizing with this end does not increase the number of morality's virtues, but rather provides those with a special point of reference for the unification of all ends, end of quote. We think of the complete good, happiness in proportion to virtue, but we live in a world that does not regularly so deliver to provide a philosophical resolution to the conflicting demands of morality and the counsels of prudence, humans have reason to postulate the existence of God as well as freedom and immortality. Human experience of the moral life and our consciousness of it conjoined with our need to provide synthetic unity in our understanding of our practical life, provide reasons to postulate God and reasons to hope for the highest good as the complete good 
in the next life. On Kant's view, the question about the result of this right conduct can be given an answer. Philosophical theory of uh, leads into religion. In the last two paragraphs in part five, theoretical basics and sorting out some grounding claims. In summary, each of the three key elements I've presented is essential part essential or basic part of Kant's philosophy of morality, which according to Alan Donegan is the careful product of isolating the philosophic core of the common morality of our Judeo-Christian tradition. Of these three key elements, the concept of, of the end in itself, a game changer, along with related interpretive and conceptual elements, provides a special ground for the larger account of morality. From a strictly philosophical standpoint on Kant's view, morality is not grounded on religion, but religion itself arises out of this powerful moral base as we humans go on to ask, if I do what I ought to do, what may I then hope? Making use of a careful analysis of our practical life and the dual complexity of our reasoning, Kant articulates the idea of the highest good as the complete good and uses that to argue for the existence of God. A few last comments. I realize I may have caught some of you off guard this weekend by staying with the traditional philosophical practice of using the unavoidably popular construction metaphor, shall we say, in a vertical fashion, as X grounds Y in the sense of X is the base or ground on which uh, Y is then constructed. I've left for others to focus on the meaning and faith that we can share with one another and developing the grounding in God questions. My hope remains that the power of Kant's writing and his commitment to morality and its clarification can helpful, be helpful in communities that value and discuss the critical roles that morality and the God of our faith play in our daily lives. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.